It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest on New York's news and talk station 77 WABC. Good afternoon and welcome to Left versus Right here on the WBC Talk Radio, 77 WABC. My name is Anthony Weiner representing the left side of the spectrum. Curtis Slee will be joining us in the second hour representing the right, or what he would say is right down the middle or right as incorrect. We have a great show today. It's really great to have you along with us. This is, of course, a very meaningful weekend. We are in the midst of Holy Week, tomorrow, Easter Sunday. For my Lantzman, the Jewish community, this is Pesach, and of course it's Ramadan for those followers of Islam. And so this is a good time to be getting together, talking about issues, talking about things that unify us, talking about things that maybe divide us, but we can talk about them a little better. And I'm really glad you're along. We're going to have another issue where I dive in a little bit deeper than normal uh, today, another issue that perhaps will prepare you for the conversations you might be having over your holiday dinner table Call it maybe the context of the week or the meet you in the middle segment. We also are going to hear in the second half of our show, we're going to hear from a person who's going to bring us another chapter in the Hunter Biden laptop story. I can't get enough of this one. A couple of weeks ago, I did a a whole show about it or a good portion of a show about it. It became something of an expert because I was hearing a lot about it on the show, uh, hearing a lot about it on this network, and I wanted to learn more. But this week, the the story got even crazier. And a little later in the show, we are going to hear about an interview given by John Paul Mac Isaac. And if you are a real Hunter Bidenologist, you'll recognize that name. He is the guy who had the laptop. And what he said this week is going to make you either scratch your head, smile, or laugh out loud. Or as my son Jordan would say, lol. And I try to remind him that that... I actually asked Jordan the other day, do you know what lol means? I don't, I don't think he knew. He just knew lol. And then, of course, when Curtis comes at, uh, at 3 o'clock, uh, we are going to talk about some of the issues of the week. He, of course, is someone who can give us remarkable context about the subway shooter. If you've been listening to WABC Talk Radio all week, you know that Curtis was there at the time that it happened, or soon thereafter, put it that way, and was reporting from the ground as only Curtis can, given his knowledge of the subway system. We're also going to try to answer the question, did Governor Hochul have a terrible week, a very bad week, or a disastrous week? That is the grade curve for her this week. And I saw Eric Adams today said he wasn't going to commit to releasing his taxes as some – just about every – well, that's not true. I was going to say just about every mayor has in the past, but Mike Bloomberg famously did not. And Curtis, as he always does, found a great story for us to talk about And it has to do with whether your neighborhood police officer can smoke marijuana when he's off the job. And depending on what neighborhood you're in, whether that's the case or not. So it's really great to have you along. If you'd like to get in the queue and uh, be part of the conversation, represent the part of Curtis while he is on his way in, feel free to do that. 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. Of course, you can always follow us on WABCradio.com. 
And all past episodes, including the one about me and Hunter Biden, that I did on Hunter Biden, which I thought was excellent, you can get that on the Red Apple Podcast Network. So what is the issue today? And as you you know, if you're listening to this program for a couple of months now, and I want to thank all of you who have. Fortunately, a lot of people have been tuning in. Some new people have been coming in because they wanted to hear, since I'm not perhaps a traditional host, well, for anything, but not a traditional host on this network. We've gotten a lot of new listeners and also folks who have engaged that they hadn't before. I have been trying to pick one issue each week. And although we talk about this being left versus right and being a slugfest, but it's more kind of a meet you in the middle kind of segment where we try to give context to an issue. And today is a challenging one. It's the issue of immigration. And I'll let that sink in because, yeah, that's a biggie. Um, Because we really do have a crisis uh, in immigration, but – as I'm going to try to describe, it's a it's a crisis really in four parts or four different elements of it. And like past issues that I've talked about on this program, it is one where the conversation, everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome to call in. Everyone is welcome to participate. But the 10 percent on the far left who believe that everything AOC says is gospel and that Joe Biden can do no wrong and that every Democratic position is the right one. And the 10 percent on the right who believe the same thing about Donald Trump, the right wing and the Republican Party, this conversation is less for you than it is for probably the 80 percent who are partisan, who have firm views about where they are on the political spectrum. And if you're listening to WABC, you're probably more inclined to be more right leaning. But you're open to suggestions, open to facts and open to having real discussions about it. You don't want every issue reduced to just a bumper sticker or just a name calling. And then there are a bunch that I'd like to participate in this conversation that are people that have checked out, that have said, listen, I don't believe any of this is on the level. I'm not going to listen to these debates. I'm not going to participate in them. But immigration is one of those debates that if you give it some context, you quickly realize that there is enormous amount of consensus among us. And a recent poll showed that one thing has held for the last 35 years or so, despite all the controversy, and that is – Over 65% of Americans believe that we are a nation of immigrants and are proud of that, meaning that the United States of America as an immigrant country is still something that we should aspire to and be proud of. But there's a lot of differences about what that means. So as we look at the so-called crisis of immigration, it really comes down to four different crises, three of which I have solutions for and one that I don't. To start with, let's talk about what's going on on the southern border today. And it was highlighted even further. There was a story in today's New York Post about a plane landing in Westchester under the dark of night and um, migrants getting off the plane, people feeling that was controversial. Last week, Curtis and I spoke about this a little bit. What is going on in the southern border is that people are coming mostly from places like Guatemala and Honduras, from Central American countries. And they are coming to our border and lining up to be asked to be granted asylum saying that they are being persecuted, they are unsafe in their country. And there there are laws in our country, plus the very nature of our country is we're a place that the persecuted can come and find relief. But that line has gotten bigger and bigger. It's not historically big. It's not bigger than it was in 2019. It's not bigger than it was in 2009. But it's big. And the line is becoming overwhelmed. And on that line, so to speak, are a lot of children, a lot of unaccompanied children. And let's just begin with one basic element of all of this. The people on that line are not criminals. They're applying to go through the existing legal system that we have in our country. They're not climbing over walls. We're going to get to that later. They're not being smuggled in. We're going to get to that later. 
These are people who are trying to do it the right way, and they're on this line. But once they appear on that line, it's becoming harder and harder to figure out what to do with them. Some people are being, if they have a relative or they have a sponsor in this country and they're not at the Texas border and can't get there, we fly them, we the United States taxpayer, fly them closer to where those people are. That's why those flights are landing. The fact that they're landing at night is just a function of the fact that that's the cheapest time to land them. They're also getting in buses. They're also getting on trains. We're figuring out where to put these children and to some degree families. We're not – we don't have very many people who are being allowed in if they're, uh, if they're adults. But basically children and families, we're trying to figure out what to do with them. And those people are very often fleeing countries that are falling apart. Honduras and Guatemala ravaged from – but COVID-19, for example, two hurricanes have hit. So there's an enormous amount of despair. But still, we have to figure out of those people which are true asylees and which are not. And the, the, the problem is right now they're being effectively released and told to come back. And that process is very long. Solving this problem is not rocket science, but you've got to do three things. One is you have to take that line and separate out the people who are here coming for economic purposes, coming here to make money, coming here to improve their lives by making money. They're on that same line because we don't have such a program in place right now. We have been completely stuck as a country coming up with it. We've done it for other countries. For example, uh, Mexico has a program that allows people to come in, be migrant workers, and then leave, and about 270,000 of them do that every single year. But we don't have a similar program for, the re- for Central America. So the first thing we need to do, and it's kind of like a, a tough thing but something that's doable, is say, okay, if you're coming here to make money, if you're coming here because you want to be a migrant worker, if you're coming here because you want to come here for, for economic purposes, we have to give them a separate line. We have to sort them out. They're on that same line because it's the only way to get in, and it's doubling and tripling and quadrupling the number of people waiting on the line to get for asylees. The second thing that we have to do, and I know that first one sounds easy, but it's, it, it, I mean, sounds hard, but it actually is difficult, but doable. The second things we have to do is we have to take these cases out of the hands of, of immigration courts. And if you think that I've got a radio show now because I'm going to make a comeback in politics, you'll hear this is not a popular position among some of my friends on the left. But right now, part of what's slowing down this process of determining whether someone is a legitimate case for asylum is we have to wait and put them before an immigration court judge. Judges, as all judges are, appointed by either Democrats or Republicans, and sometimes the cases are coming out wildly different. Some judges will let in eight of ten asylee applications. Some will let in one of ten. And what many people are saying when they come to our borders, I'm going to take my chance. In fact, many many uh, families are returning more than once because they want to figure out whether they can get a judge that will be more sympathetic to their cause. This is, does not have to be this way even under the present law. They can be heard in front of administrative officers, essentially bureaucrats who can hear these cases and try to determine whether indeed these people are being persecuted and should be let in and had to dispense with them. Which brings us to the third thing. We have to do this quickly. We cannot have people waiting for two years to have an asylum case heard where they're released out into the country, even if they're going to come back and even if statistics show they generally do, released out into the country with a phone or with a monitoring system or with a phone number that they have to check in on. We have to make sure that everyone down in, in, in these countries knows that if they come here, it is not going to be two years of reprieve while they wait for their case. It's going to be a matter of weeks and a matter of months. And if we do that, then holding these people, in a civilized way, 
in a compassionate way becomes a much more easy thing to do. We're holding it for weeks and months rather than years. So we have to do those things and we have to do them quickly. And one other thing that we have to do, and this perhaps some on the right will think is outrageous, we have to help these countries before we get these migrant waves. If there is a country that's struggling with COVID-19, if there's a country that has been struck by a hurricane, it is much cheaper for us to provide aid to help those countries so that their people don't have to flee the country than it is to deal with immigration in our border. So that's the crisis at the southern border. Four ideas on how to deal with it. The second crisis that we have in this country around immigration is the fact that there are 11.4 million people in this country who are here that are undocumented. And for those of you who think the answer to that is just to go arrest them all, that's 11.4 million people out of 331 million. That's about 3%. That's needles in a haystack. And besides, many, many of those people, and we all know them, are people who are working, who are paying taxes, probably with a fake Social Security number, but paying taxes, sending their kids to school. They've learned English. They've opened up businesses. They're constructive Americans in every way, except somewhere along the line, they came here uh, and are, are here without documentation. And for those people, solving that problem is important because mixed into those 11.4 million people are some real troublemakers. They're not all that way. And in order for us to figure out who is right and who is not, who is someone that we should allow to stay here and who is not, I have the following proposal. Anyone who can show they pay taxes, they follow the law, that they're working, that they're not a drain on the government, that they've learned English, that they've had their kids in school, those people get to stay. But they don't go to the front of any line. They go to the end of the line. They get an ID card that can't be copied. They're put at the end of the line to get citizenship. And it's not amnesty because they have to pay a fine. That's how you probably separate out. If you say if you come out of the, of the, of the shadows, if you become part of the system, if you follow the rules, we will give you a path. And what's left over, those are the people that we can pursue. Those are the people who don't come out of the shadows, who don't choose to take advantage of this, those are the ones that we know are probably troublesome and we should pursue. Now, I should say, this is the crux of a proposal that unified about 80% of Congress, and it still has not become law, but it's probably something that has a little bit for everyone. So that's the second crisis, is what to do with the undocumented who are here. The third problem is, how do you keep the bad guys out? And I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you, dear listeners, to sit down for this part. I believe I, Anthony Weiner, liberal, progressive, former candidate for, for, for mayor, member of Congress, representing the Democratic Party, I believe we should build a wall. Okay. Now, I don't believe it's going to do much good. I believe it's thousands of miles. I believe it goes through private property. I believe it doesn't solve the problem. But what it does do, I believe is it takes it off the table. It takes the conversation off the table for those people who believe that enforcement and enforcement alone is a solution to this problem. And it does, I believe, maybe symbolically send the message that if we don't get our borders under control, that if we don't have an immigration system that works, then nothing else will work. So those are three, I don't know, call them solutions to our big three immigration problems. But the final one, is one that, frankly, I don't have an answer to. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to talk to you about that one because that might be the mother of all immigration crises 
Is that it, Kevin? Is that crisis seize? Is that the way you say it? That's the one that I don't have an answer to, and that's the one that maybe you do. So give us a call, 800-848-9222-848-WABC. And also, when we're done talking about immigration and taking some calls, I will let you in on the craziest new twist in the Hunter Biden laptop case. Thanks for being with us. See you on the other side. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. Welcome back. My name is Anthony Weiner, representing the left side. And Curtis Lee will be joining us at the top of the hour. Elvis Presley bringing us in, saying a little less conversation, a little more action. That is perhaps the perfect line to introduce the subject of immigration we've been talking about today. And if you'd like to be part of that conversation, 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. So we're talking about the challenges of immigration. We're talking about the need to kind of meet in the middle on some of these things. We're talking about the challenge of trying to get the uh, these crises resolved. And I said that it's really four crises. There's one at the southern border that we're dealing with that has our immediate problem. We have the more long-term challenge of dealing with the undocumented who are in our country now and of also how you keep the bad guys out. And the wall is just part of it. Obviously, we need – Plenty more enforcement, but frankly, many of our enforcement agents are focusing on those other things when they probably should be focusing on things like keeping out gang members, keeping drugs, interdicting drugs and the like. But I said there was a fourth challenge in immigration that had vexed me, one that I did not have an answer to, and perhaps it's the one that I should because I've got the experience around it. And let me give you some background. First of all, you know, many of you who are in the New York City area know I used to be a member of Congress served on the Judiciary Committee, ran for mayor a couple of times, was a member of the New York City Council. So I'm familiar with the moving parts involved in immigration. But the challenge that we have today, the, the, the biggest challenge in solving the immigration crisis is essentially that politicians are afraid to do their job. That the challenge today, the existential threat that politicians face is Democrats don't fear Republicans running against them. And Republicans really don't fear Democrats running against them. The way districts have been drawn so perfectly over the course of the last 20 or 30 years to make safe Democrat and Republican districts, then now the challenge that most politicians of their own party, from the extremes of their own party. So Democrats are fearful of being called not progressive or liberal enough by those in their party who believe, I don't think anyone believes in truly open borders, but who believe that most of the stuff that I've said about enforcement you shouldn't do. They're fearful to stand up to those people. And on the right, and this is a much bigger problem, frankly, in the Republican Party, and I'm just saying, I'm not saying that because I'm a Democrat, but it's just, it's true. On the right, you have the challenge that common sense, middle of the ground, middle of the road Republicans, even conservative Republicans, they're afraid of antagonizing or doing anything on immigration that would lead to their wing of their party, saying that what they're doing is amnesty. So even guys like Marco Rubio, the, a golden boy of, the, of conservative politics, 
basically is now not ever going to be president because he had the audacity of working with the other two-thirds of Congress and trying to come up with a solution to this. And I don't know what the answer is. And the other element of the politicians not being allowed to do their job is that, you know, I mentioned earlier about the wall. You know, it is very easy to make this issue into a platitude. Build the wall and you solve the problems. And it is very difficult to do the, the true nuance and context necessary here. But I don't know what it takes for politicians to basically say, I'm going to be courageous enough to take this step. Presidents Bush, President Obama, President um, Biden, even to some degree President Trump, I think that if presented with a package that a little bit from the left, a little bit from the right, but a lot from the middle, they might do it. But it's hard to do in this environment. I mean, it is really hard to do. So we're going to take take some calls here. Also, as I mentioned a little bit later in the show, we are going to hear the, the latest crazy twist in the Hunter Biden laptop story. And Curtis is going to be here to talk to us a little bit about Curtis uh, Curtis's experience down with the the subway shooter. Um, and uh, but what we'll do now is let's go to the phones. The, the boards have filled up. Immigration has a way of doing that. Uh, let's go to Bob in New Jersey, who has uh, some ideas of his own about the border crisis. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining us. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing um, well. Yeah, I I think the uh, control has got to be taken away from the cartels, the drug cartels. And the way you do that, I think, is first you got to finish the wall, and two, you have to somehow bring the immigration people into Mexico to try to interview the people before they come into this country and to see who they are, where they're coming from, what their status is. I know that sounds complicated, but it stops it at the border and it allows you to do something before people come into the country. Yeah, that's I mean, Bob, I think, you know, as I said, OK, let's let's build a wall. But remember something about about this notion of disempowering the cartels, the people that are lined up that are really making the so-called crisis of the moment are people that are showing up at our border that are doing things lawfully. It's not the, the – I mean people are being smuggled in at approximately about the same rates as they always have been. That's – and one of the reasons that people are showing up on these asylum lines is because they – don't have any other kind of good route to come in. But as far as interviewing them on the Mexican side, look, we have a we have a border crisis that also on the Mexican side, th- those border towns are completely overrun. Remember, a lot of these are children that are coming in. And part of what we need to do, though, is whether it's on the Mexican side or on the U.S. side, is do it more quickly. As I said in my intro, we have to do this more quickly and more efficiently. Right now, the message is getting out that, yeah, I can get on the asylum line and I can be in process, quote unquote, for years. And that isn't the way to do it. Stefano in the Bronx, what do you think about the border? Thanks for checking in. Stefano, are you there? Yep. Go ahead, buddy. You're on the air. Can you hear me? I can, sir. All right. Sorry. First of all, I I wish you could get through the minute that you want to say, because by the time the time comes, you always forget what you wanted to say. But <laughs> anyway, um, I consider myself a pretty much down the middle kind of guy. Uh, pretty much, I would say, fiscal conservative, uh, more social libertarian, because truthfully, I think if you break it down, you can't be a social libertarian unless you're a fiscal conservative, because everyone's good with doing good for people. But how do you do that? You need money to be money. <laughs> so, you know, we keep... Uh, just as an example, individualize a problem 
And then it takes us a long time, first of all, to individualize it. Then it takes a long time to get it funded. And I'm just going to give you, throw you an example out there. Like, we've always had this issue. So our last administration comes up with this bribe. Okay, great. So finally, after years and years, we recognize that we need these issues to be taken care of. So we come up with drive. We come up with $850 million, And they disappear. So now we're back to square one again. Well, you know, but anyway, I but I got to tell you, thank you very much, Stefano. But I, I tell you, you know, part of the challenge of the immigration issue is that it's not new. You know, there is not a heck of a lot. You know, there, I hear it all the time. I support immigration if people come in legally, if they come in the way – my parents and grandparents said, hey, this asylum situation was exactly the same than it is now. The, the, the history of people coming through the gates at Ellis Island, turning to the person behind them and saying, get out of my country, that's part of what it means to be an American almost. It happened to my, my ancestors. It happened probably to all of yours. This is not a new problem. We have been wrestling this with a long time. But, you know, we have about 13 percent of our country is first-generation American. Meaning that they're that they were born in another country, um, and that's higher than it's been, but still relatively low compared to other countries. It's lower than Germany, lower than Austria, lower than Canada. But we are always going to have this tension of people who are always going to want to be here. And I'll tell you something else: we want the best and the brightest. We want the most ambitious. We want the hardest working from other countries to come here. We want that. I mean, imagine if today we had a system that all of the smartest computer folks in Russia all left and came to the United States. You know, it's just the drain that that would have on the country. We want that kind of thing. So this is not a new problem. But let's go to Chris in Monroe. Chris, do you have some thoughts about the border solution? Hey, Anthony, how are you? Well, I, I don't have a solution, that's for sure. But I just want to say that, you know, I listen to you guys. I listen to you. I've been listening to you since you've been on here uh, and then with you and Curtis. And 99% of the time, I'm like, man, I got to call this guy and tell him, oh, geez, you're, you're way off base. But I will say this. Everything you said about the whole immigration thing, pretty much everything is right on the money. I mean, you made common sense. You know, uh, uh, you know you didn't, you haven't, you're not going in any weird directions or anything, but you just, you just made sense, man. You know, the, and especially the fact that, People have to stay, you know, if they're going to stay for two or three years, they're going to disappear, you know, and the whole thing is for naught. Yeah, well, I I appreciate it. I I especially appreciate that you're surprised that I make sense. I know I have that effect on, on some people sometimes. But, Chris, you're exactly right. One of the things, and this is something that some of my friends on the left don't seem to understand. They're insane. People who seek to come to this country, they watch what we're doing and they learn quickly. So when I said that there are a lot of people who are seeking economic solutions by being on the asylum line, it's because that's the only place that they can go. Uh, you know, people will will figure out ways to come here to protect their family, to find economic freedom for their family, to protect their kids. And let's keep something in mind here. This is this is a time that we're unified in our our expressions of our religious faith. No matter what your religious faith is this this time of year, you're thinking big thoughts. You're thinking thoughts of gratitude, whether it be for Easter or Pesach or Ramadan. These are children, okay? These are unaccompanied children. A child from Nicaragua, a child from Honduras has not committed any crime. They're not an illegal. They're a human being that we have to try to figure out what to do with. But a mother is not going to bring their child across the border if they think that it's not going to succeed in having them stay there. 
and or if they think it'll take two years before this gets sorted out. They'll only come if they think that they can show that they are truly being persecuted, that they're truly at risk, that they're truly endangered. And that quickness, that speed and that surety of the system is very important to have. And that's true if you're going to have successful laws on any level, but certainly in immigration. Next, we have Edward calling from Chicago, Illinois. Edward, thank you for checking in today. Yeah, Anthony. So my thing uh, is that um, so we don't hold up commerce. Uh, we really need to get serious about military operations limited between Nicaragua and Mexico. That's my idea. Me, to t- tell me more what you're saying. Well, targeting the cartels. I'm not talking about the caravan people coming up north. Particularly right. the cartels is what we're talking about, obviously. Right. I mean, look, here's the here's what we have done traditionally. And that's a it's a good point, Edward. I appreciate your calling. What we've done traditionally is try to support stable governments in Latin America. We've tried to keep them on their feet to be able to do the job that they can to interdict drugs. Now, we hear all the time from those countries, you gringos up north, you complain about immigration, you complain about gangsters, you complain about drugs, and then you consume our drugs like crazy. You're not being helpful. And there's some truth to that. I think we have to figure out the demand side as well. But that's that's why I say the tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of money in the federal budget that we devote to supporting these countries winds up coming back in spades because it a stable country, a country that can handle a famine, a famine or a, a storm or a country that can handle a disease in its own borders means that those people don't flow into our country and – our immigration policies can withstand. And I mean, look, there's a certain common thread here to all of these things. And that is that they're solvable problems, but you need to be able to give a little bit in both directions. And those of my colleagues on the left, that means you need to give a little bit on the idea of having quick and in some cases severe consequences if you violate immigration laws. On the right, it means recognizing that not All of the undocumented that are showing up at our borders are the same, that there are some that are of value. There are some that help support our economy. There are some that truly are in need, and there are some that are doing it completely lawfully and that we should honor that. And also on the right, we have to to say that, look, enforcement is important, but it is not the be-all and end-all. We are not going to enforce our way out of this problem. We are not going to round up 11.4 undocumented people. We are not going to take five-year-old and six-year-old kids and lock them up in cages. We're just not going to do that. That's not who we are as a country. And if we keep in mind this kind of, this kind of center space, this kind of common sense middle, then I think that immigration policies can be improved and we can solve these crises once and for all. But if we don't figure out a way to let politicians be less afraid of doing their job, none of it's going to get resolved. When we come back from the break, I don't know how else to put it. It is a bizarre interview that was uh, that was given by John Paul Mac Isaac. He is the guy that got the Hunter Biden laptop. He is the one that originally started this whole cascade of things. And you heard me talk about it a couple of weeks ago. I'm something of an expert of this now. I'm not ready to write a book or anything, although I recommend that Miranda Devine wrote a book. You should get that. But even she might be surprised if she hears what we have uh, that we have for you on the other side of the break. And, of course, Curtis coming in at the top of the hour. Talk about the subway shooter. 
Hochul's terrible week. And also, can your local police officer smoke pot when he gets home? Is he allowed? Thanks for being here. See you on the other side. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. We have all kinds of Elvis going on on the show today. Welcome back. My name's Anthony Weiner. I am the left side of left versus right. Curtis Lee will be joining us at the top of the hour to talk about uh, some of the issues of the day. He has been very kind to let me do the first hour. I'm learning this as I go, trying to uh, bring some new issues to the fore, try to have some real conversations, and I really appreciate uh, all of you have called in. If you'd like to get on the board, 800-848-WABC, 848-9222. The great conversation about immigration, but I, there's something about the Hunter Biden laptop story I cannot stay away from. Most, most of my colleagues on the left just don't want to talk about it. I love it because I now know it pretty well. I did a whole show on it, not last week, but the week before. You can find it at uh, wabcradio.com on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And by the way, you can subscribe to the show there. If you can't be with us every week between 2 to 4 on Saturday, you can subscribe. It will automatically appear in your feed. Best way to search is actually left versus right. You'll get my show. You, you, you'll, you'll get the show that Han does. And um, and you can find the show I did about, about uh, Hunter Biden. And there are a lot of elements of this story. But one of the big elements that is constantly harped upon here on, on uh, 77 WABC Talk Radio is the big cover-up that took place to keep the Hunter Biden laptop from being really uh, discussed and talked about when it came out just a month before the 2020 election. And I covered this issue extensively when I talked about it, and I pointed out that there were so many things that were so suspicious about this laptop. The fact that it came out when it did, the fact that once again it was emails, the fact that that our intelligence agencies were warning that this was the way the Russians were going to – they were – you know, it just looked very suspicious. But one of the things that made it very suspicious and made it very difficult for other newspapers besides the New York Post to write about it is that no one wanted to share the laptop. No one wanted to share a copy of the hard drive with the other newspapers. In fact, when the person that had it, and I don't want to name names, I'll just say that he's a host on on uh, on WABC and he's one that you should listen to and he's a former mayor, would not give a copy of this laptop to any newspaper besides the New York Post. He even told the, the, the New York Times no when they asked about Washington Post. Results. So they wrote stories, but they couldn't have accessed the laptop to see what it really was. So it a lot of it was that kind of suspicion. Now that it's been widely shared, a lot of elements of the laptop have been confirmed to be authentic, including the financial stuff. And I, as I said a couple of weeks ago, looks terrible for Hunter Biden. But there are some crazy things about that hard drive. For example, on the hard drive, there are folders called Mail, Suspicious, suspicious Picks Package, and Big Guy File. Obviously, Hunter Biden didn't put those on the laptop. Someone else did. There's all kinds of evidence now that it's been analyzed of files being put on both before and after this drive became public. 
And so one of the people that can answer questions about all this is the original shopkeeper in Delaware that the laptop was dropped off at, who took the laptop, turned it over to the FBI, and eventually turned it over to sources close to Mayor Giuliani, who, and then it became public in the New York Post. So this fellow did an interview this week on a, a, on a right-wing media outlet called Real America's Voice. His name is John Paul Mac Isaac. I'm convinced he added the Mac just to do business with Apple more. Um, and he was asked about some of the some of the information that is out there about the laptop, when he got it, what made him decide to turn it over, what he was concerned about. Um, and and he said some interesting things. And 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 he, and and one of the things he said is that that he turned it over to the FBI, was thrilled to get it, but that he kept a copy of it so that he would have some some protection. And then he also said this. That's what caused me to do a deep dive in the laptop once it became my property. During that time, I saw a lot of photos. I did not see a lot of photos that are being reported to be seen. Now, with that said, uh, I do know that there have been multiple attempts over the past year and a half to uh, insert questionable material into the laptop, as in not physically, but passing it off this misinformation or disinformation as coming from the laptop. And that is a major concern of mine because I have fought tooth and nail to protect the integrity of this drive. And to to jeopardize that is going to mean that everything that I sacrifice will be for nothing. Okay. Now, that was a little bit confusing. It wasn't terribly – it was a little confusing. But what he said there is that as he's been watching this debate – he said he's been seeing things that were being characterized as been on the drive that were not there. Meaning he's saying things were being alleged to have been part of the laptop debate that were not from the laptop. And he is 100% right about that. For example, this whole guy, this guy Bobolivsky, Bobolusky, all of the stuff that he's alleging about Hunter Biden and about Joe Biden, people are describing it as being something that was found on the laptop. It's not. A lot of the stuff that is on the laptop that was discovered when when other publications started, to, they finally got a copy of the hard drive, were stuff that had been put on, as he said, he said, were being inserted into the conversation that were not from the laptop. And he's right about that. That is happening. That a lot of people are saying things are on the laptop that are not. And there's also a lot of the, the data that was on the laptop when people started to look at it, when they finally got access to it, it was more than just the New York Post that had it said that they can't tell when it was put on the laptop. He said that sometimes there's there's metadata that showed that it was inserted after the laptop was turned over to the FBI. Some of it was put into spe- files like I described earlier, like there's one there's one file on the laptop called big guy file. <laughs> that was clearly someone took a lot of the documents that were on the file and combined them, but they also could have inserted something. And I'm pointing all of this out because the the uh, much has been made about the laptop that just doesn't hold up. But I'll tell you what does hold up that Hunter Biden was involved in financial relationships that look really bad. That he was involved in relationships with Chinese entities. He was involved in entities with Burisma, a Ukrainian entity that are just don't look good. Also, we now know or we've heard that he might be prosecuted for, I mean, he might get indicted for things to do with that laptop. 
But one of the things that absolutely is not on the laptop, and I defy anyone to call in and tell me what does, it doesn't attach anything to Joe Biden. There's really nothing there on that front. But I just want to return to this notion of was the media right to be suspicious about this laptop? And the answer is yes. I mean, there's just a lot of things. It's kind of like someone, one of the experts that took a look at it, so one of the um, one of the technology guys who does forensic examinations of laptop said that it was kind of like a crime scene with McDonald's wrappers lying all around it. Like the, 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 the dock, the, the hard drive itself had been so polluted with other people copying it, taking it, adding things to it, subtracting things from it that it was really hard to figure out what was news. And I just want to reiterate, when this was coming out in October of 2020, by the way, every major newspaper did a story about the New York Post stories. But all of these newspapers were also had been burned four years earlier when the Russians attacked our country by hacking the DNC, hacking John Podesta, and then using it to influence the election. So that the notion there was some kind of big cover-up didn't happen. But what did happen was that Twitter handled it terribly, tried to stop the story from being circulated. That turned out to be a big mistake. They reversed themselves. Um, but the idea that this laptop is an open and shut case clearly isn't uh, the case. And we have some people who are on the line who want to talk about this at 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Uh, Dave in Long Island, I'm sorry to keep you holding so long. Thank you for, for joining in. No problem, brother. Worth the wait. Um, I've been listening to you with the laptop, and I'm glad you just said what you said, that it has nothing to do with Joe Biden. Everybody keeps saying that. That's a Democrat talking point. Just think about taking a ride on Air Force Two to China multiple times and coming back with all these big money deals. Joe did not know. They're on the same plane together. Why was his son coming to China? He absolutely knew what he was doing. He had to have known. And that's a lot of money we're talking about. You don't talk to your father. Hey, Dad, I just scored $31 million. Not a word of it. Well, let me let me tell you, David, and I, I appreciate it. Look, first of all, rides on Air Force One, if they are signs that you know what your kids are doing or what business they are involved in, there were 31 times that 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 um, during the Trump years that family members took right. And I'm talking to the ones that were in the administration, non non um, administrative officials that, you know, family members on Air Force One happens all the time. Family members on Air Force Two happens all the time. People bring family members. The description of that trip, there's photographs on the on the White House website of photographs of the Biden family in China doing Chinese touristy things. But there's no doubt about it. It certainly helped Hunter Biden that his name was Biden, that he came there with with Vice President Biden. It definitely helped, no doubt about it. But if you read the emails that are actually validated and confirmed that are on the laptop, it has Hunter Biden saying things, I have no idea what dad's going to do. He doesn't know. He doesn't have information about this. Or or there's even emails of Hunter being pissed off because his father, he doesn't talk to his father about stuff, that they're, they're estranged and don't talk. Well, they're not estranged, but they don't talk about these things. There's not a question. And by the way, if what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you don't like the idea of family members going to China and doing business deals, then you must be furious at Donald Trump when Ivanka went over and got copyrights in a matter of months that usually take years and years to get from the Chinese. Okay, there is no doubt about it. Hunter Biden transacted his family name for his benefit. If that is the crime that he is going to be charged with, first of all, that happens Far too often that people who have famous last names benefit from it. 
with the name like Wiener, I'm I'm quite certain I did not benefit from it. But Mitch McConnell's wife, Donald Trump's family, left and right. Donald Trump's sons were traveling, going to India and doing hotel deals when they promised they wouldn't. All, And I'm not saying that Donald Trump did anything illegal. I'm just saying that because Hunter Biden cashed in on his last name and took a trip on Air Force Two is not exactly an open and shut case. When we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Then at the top of the hour, we're going to hear from uh, we're going to spend some time with the right part of left versus right. Curtis Sliwa. He has a great uh, just a, he finds these things. I don't know how he does this. He has a great story about uh, whether your neighborhood police officer, when they get home, are permitted under the rules of their township to smoke marijuana. And we're also going to hear a little bit more about uh, Hunter Biden when we get back. The phone lines are still have one or two more slots open if you want to join the conversation. 800-848-WABC. This is 77 Talk Radio, also heard on WABCRadio.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you on the other side. And the radio was in the hands of